No sooner than this man miraculously takes his first steps in almost 40 years. I mean, that had to be one of the most beautiful scenes you can ever imagine, right? I mean, have you ever seen when a veteran returns home and they take their first steps with their prosthetic limbs? Or have you ever seen a child who receives a cochlear implant and hears the, the sound of their parents' voice for the first time? I mean, these are like emotional, beautiful moments. And that's what I'm imagining, you know, 40 years or 38 years, and now this man is taking his first steps. Just an incredible scene, and the religious leaders are there to see it too. And here is what they say. It is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. Hey, welcome to Night Church, the Friday evening service of Praxis, the young adult ministry of the Loma Linda University Church. You're going to be hearing some great sermons, testimonies on this podcast that are going to encourage and deepen your faith. We are so excited that you're here, and I hope you enjoy this sermon, and so much so that you share it with someone that you love. Welcome. Good evening, everyone. Happy Sabbath to you. I'm super grateful to be here. I uh, had the privilege of joining um, for Praxis a few months ago, had a blast, and I'm really thankful to be back. I hope you all had a wonderful holiday. I hope that you're all staying safe. It's a crazy time right now. It's a crazy time, and anything that you're doing to um, help keep each other safe is appreciated, so thank you. Um, my family had an interesting holiday season. So two years ago, my father-in-law bought the family tickets to see Hamilton, okay? Now, if you've seen Hamilton, just give a soft, like, round of applause, right? If you've seen it, okay? And we're good, okay? Got it out of the way. It's like the new CrossFit, right? Like, I see Hamilton. So, uh, but we are excited to see Hamilton, so let me tell you about it. Uh, bought, um, the tickets two, bought the tickets two years ago for a show at the Pantages in Hollywood, Los Angeles, beautiful theater. The show was supposed to be March 2020. Show got canceled. No worries, right? Uh, got rescheduled and then canceled again. And then rescheduled and then canceled again. And then rescheduled to Christmas Eve of 2021. And uh, 642 days after the original uh, date of the show, we were finally going to see Hamilton on Christmas Eve. Matinee show, super excited. Piled in the car, drove out to LA. Uh, really nice seats that we had. If you've been to Pantages, you know it's a gorgeous theater. And then you see the stage, and it's Hamilton. And it's like, we're really going to see this thing. And, uh, and so excited there with 2,700 of our best masked friends to watch Hamilton. And then uh, over the intercom, they announced the show was canceled. <laughs> and uh, so we all just got up and went home. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it was a small price to pay. Maybe not a small price, but, but obviously our biggest concern was just, you know, the health and safety of the cast and crew of Hamilton. Um, you know, we could go home and watch Hamilton on Disney Plus in our living room. We could put our masks on to make it feel more like the real thing. Um, but, you know, in spite of that, we had a great... Christmas, you had a great New Year, and I hope that you all did as well. I want to challenge you tonight with a question. What is the gospel? Is it an old story? Is it 
a set of beliefs? Is it an agreement you sign? Is it an exclusive club that you join? We, of course, get the word gospel from scripture, and we translate it as good news. And that word is used to announce the arrival of Jesus. It's used in the retelling of the life of Jesus. And it's even used many times by Jesus himself. And when he arrived in ancient Palestine, it was known where to find this good news. And it was the same place that you could find the presence of God. And that was at the temple. And we're talking here about the second temple. And I think we have a, a depiction of the second temple. Before the second temple, there was the tabernacle. Now, the tabernacle traveled with the Israelites. It didn't look quite like that. It traveled with the Israelites so that God could be on the go with them. And then they arrived in the promised land, and they built what was known as the first temple, which also was known as Solomon's temple. And that stood for nearly 400 years until it was unthinkably destroyed by the Babylonians before the Israelites were exiled out east. But then about 70 years later, they return home. And their first order of business is we're going to build a new temple, the second temple. It was like this great comeback story, and it's the conclusion of the Old Testament. Well, then comes the sequel, which we call the New Testament. And 500 years have now passed. And the second temple is now known as Herod's temple. And after numerous additions, as you can see, it is bigger and it's better than ever before. Okay, and Jewish people from all over, they descend the temple mount every single day to this incredible place to get close to the presence of God. And they, they do that by presenting offerings for their sins. And they'd also have to be careful to only go to the places that their social group was allowed to go to. Of course, they also had to make sure they didn't get too close to the presence of God, because if you weren't the high priest, that could mean trouble. But most importantly, they knew that nothing could befall this holy monument like what happened before. Because this is where God resides. This is the good news. This is the gospel. And then Jesus comes, this lowly, itinerant rabbi. And he tells them that this building can stay up or be torn down because the true temple does not sit atop the mountain. The true temple is not made of cold marble and hard brick. The true temple is living and moving and breathing and it doesn't wait for people to come to it. It goes to the people. And then Jesus went to the people. And he's at his home church in Nazareth one Sabbath. And he stands up and unrolls the scroll of Isaiah. And he reads these words. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners 
and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then you know what he does? He rolls that scroll back up, hands it back, takes a seat. And it's quiet. And the eyes are fastened upon this guy. And then he says one more thing. He says, oh yeah, by the way, that scripture today is fulfilled. So is that the gospel? Good news to the poor? Freedom for the prisoners? Sight for the blind? Liberation for those who are oppressed? Later that night, Jesus backs up what he said earlier in the morning. Verse 40 of the same chapter reads, At sunset, the people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sickness, and laying his hands on each one, he healed them. Verse 42, At daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place. The people were looking for him, and when they came to where he was, they tried to keep him from leaving them. They wanted him to sit still, just stay there. But Jesus knew that he had to always be on the move. And he said in verse 43, I must proclaim the what? The good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because that is why I was sent. What is the gospel? Jesus continues from town to town. He often finds himself in places that were experiencing the most suffering. And maybe the saddest scene that we see him approach is a pool in Jerusalem called Bethesda, or Bethsaida. And surrounding this pool were people with a variety of disabilities. Some were injured, some were blind, some were paralyzed. And the reason they all gather here is because Instead of being somewhere where they could maybe receive a little bit more help for their situations, they wanted to be here because they believed if the water moved, it was an angel stirring the water, and then the first one to somehow go into the water after it moved would be healed. But obviously this group movement was not particularly easy for them. And so you can imagine this scene where, you know, even like a light breeze goes by and there's a little ripple in the water and these suffering people try to somehow get into the water first. I mean, what a frankly depressing, pathetic scene. It's not something you want to just, it's not a place you want to be, let alone even picture in your imagination. Well, here comes Jesus, the one who claimed to be the living temple. And he walks up to a man one Sabbath who's been waiting by this pool for 38 years. And Jesus asks him in John chapter 5, do you want to get well? The man says, sir, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. And then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. Now, at once, the man was cured and picked up his mat and walked. 
No sooner than this man miraculously takes his first steps in almost 40 years. I mean, that had to be one of the most beautiful scenes you can ever imagine, right? I mean, have you ever seen when a veteran returns home and they take their first steps with their prosthetic limbs? Or have you ever seen a child who receives a cochlear implant and hears the, the sound of their parents' voice for the first time? I mean, these are like emotional, beautiful moments. And that's what I'm imagining, you know, 40 years or 38 years, and now this man is taking his first steps. Just an incredible scene, and the religious leaders are there to see it too. And here is what they say. It is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. Now, depending on your view of the gospel, they either got it right or they got it very wrong. Others also begin to notice what Jesus is doing. And from prison, John the Baptist sends some of his disciples to ask about what is going on. And Jesus tells them, he says, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the, here it is again, good news is proclaimed to the poor. And so again, I ask you, what is the gospel? Two questions that I've had to ask myself when I look at and study the life of Jesus, okay? So one is, why did he never get a horse? Have you ever thought about that? I mean, he traveled long distances in a short amount of time. Couldn't he have made a lot of ground quicker and accomplished a lot more by just getting a fleet of stallions? I mean, were horses that expensive? But he probably had good reason for going by foot, don't you think? Probably. Another question I ask myself, who are all these people who would follow him on his journey? And I'm not talking just about the disciples, but crowds of random people who give up everything to join up in Jesus' journey. So my favorite movie of all time is Forrest Gump. <laughs> Basic, I know, but check it out. Just because something is universally regarded as good does not make it any less good, all right? So Forrest Gump, incredible cinematic achievement in American history. And there's this scene where he's absolutely heartbroken because his impulsive, unloyal, drug-addicted girlfriend leaves him, right? So who wouldn't be? And in reality, of course, Jenny was only, you know, living out of her own deep-rooted pain. And, you know, maybe we should just stop and watch the movie right now. I would not be opposed to that. But, but when you look at what's happening, he's heartbroken. And what does he do in the wake of this heartbreak he's feeling? He goes on a run. He goes on a run, and, and this run of his lasts for three years, two months, 14 days, and 16 hours. And um, it's kind of funny to think how that's strangely close to the amount of time Jesus was on the move in his ministry as well. And, and as I said, I love this movie, but let's be honest, who can go for a three-year job? And then who is it that can follow a person on a three-year job? And if you've seen the movie, you know that as he's going on this run, a crowd starts to form that, that follows along with him as he runs throughout the United States. 
Well, Forrest actually answers that question of why people are following him. I'm not going to do the accent, but he says, for some reason, <laughs> what I was doing seemed to make sense to people. So I got company. And after that, I got more company. And somebody later told me it gave people hope. And a similar thing happened with Jesus. As he's going from town to town, synagogue to synagogue, impoverished community to impoverished community, people begin to follow along with him. Why? You have to ask yourself, well, was it so they could be the first to receive his sacrifice on the cross? You know, hurry up, Jesus. Like, let's just get to the death already. That's what you're here for, right? There's this term that the author Dallas Willard uses for people like that today. He calls them vampire Christians. People who only want Jesus for his blood. And listen, the sacrifice of Jesus, we know how that much that means to us as a Christian community. What, what greater demonstration of the love of God than death upon a cross? But we know that those people who followed him had no idea that was even coming. That's not why they followed Jesus. Maybe it's because of something similar to what Boris said. Maybe they follow Jesus because in that community, they were welcomed in, unlike how they felt at the temple. Maybe because of the way that that rabbi made them feel. And maybe because in the midst of some very heavy burdens that we know have plagued the people at that time, Jesus gave them hope. Three years ago, I, I had the opportunity to serve for just one unit as a hospital chaplain uh, here at the medical center. And I love and believe strongly in the power of church ministry. I've been a pastor since I um, basically became an adult, and I, I, I love the church, and I believe very strongly in it. Um, but I will say that just those four months that I spent walking around the hospital were probably when the gospel felt most real to me. And I'm guessing that some of you here work in the hospital or healthcare context, and some of you here are studying to do that. And I just want to say thank you. Truly thank you. So the job description for, for my time as a hospital chaplain uh, was simple. Walk the floors of the hospital, knock on doors, respond to pages, visit bedsides, and go be with people during what may very well be the hardest time of your life. And I had some unexpected experiences. Uh, my first page that I ever got uh, on this new assignment was to visit a man who unfortunately had been so difficult that the nurses had to put him in restraints. And so he called to talk to a chaplain about it. So I go up there and I, I walk in and um, you know, I ask him, hey, you know, how are you doing? What's going on? And, and he looks at me very closely and he says, Chaplain, I think these people are trying to kill me. I said, wow. Tell me, you know, what's going on? And 
he began to share what brought him there and how he'd been mistreated and how everybody was against him and then a little bit about his life story. I think he spoke for close to an hour and I'm just sitting there listening to him. And after that hour passes, I just you know, gently said, you know, thank you for sharing your story and, and I know it's hard to be here and I'm sorry it's not going well. But I do want to let you know that these nurses are, are here to help you. All of us just want you to be well. We're here to help you, not to hurt you. And he looked at me, and he said, wow, now I think you're trying to kill me too. <laughs> After my first 24-hour on-call shift, in which they give you a pager that will beep very loudly if something unfortunately tragic has happened, which is really anxiety-inducing, I have to say. Again, I know some of you are in the healthcare field and you're like, a pager beep means nothing to you, but for me it was brand new, and I knew it wasn't good if that thing went off, so I had my, my first ever full 24-hour shift. Finally, I can go home. I'm exhausted. I'm still kind of on edge and scared of that pager, and without thinking, I went home and I put some food in the microwave. And 30 seconds later, that thing beeped, and I panicked. <laughs> Thinking, is, some, is something going wrong? And I realized, this is an adjustment. I, I don't know if I'm cut out for this. So I kept showing up, and I kept showing up. And as time went on, I got more comfortable in this role of meeting people in their grief. And I began to have what I can only describe as sacred moments that took place on holy ground. There was the time that I sat in the, the middle of the night with a mom who had just lost her young daughter. And we were praying together, and as we prayed, she held on to me with one hand and on to her daughter's teddy bear with another. There was the young girl with cystic fibrosis who loved to draw pictures and play guessing games together, maybe because they were fun or maybe just because they took her mind off of the pain she was in. There was a family that I met in the ER who had just lost a son in his 30s due to a tragic accident. And I stayed with them for several hours, not because I had anything good to say. In fact, a lot of times I was just sitting there thinking, I have no clue what to say to these people, but I'm just going to be present with them. And I just stayed with them as they were transferred from floor to floor and giving updates and then eventually received the news that, that we all were hoping we would never receive. And I prayed with them and, and then I, I left. And three days later, I got a phone call from a pastor at this church saying, Pastor Aaron, is that you? Is this your number? I said, yes, yes it is. She said, there is this family that's been trying to track you down. I said, oh, no. Is it the man in the restraints? I hope not. <laughs> and, and she said, apparently you were with them when they lost a family member recently. Can I give them your number? I said, of course, absolutely. They called me, and they said, chaplain, chaplain, is that you? I said, yes, it's me. It's me. How are you doing? And they explained how... That night, which of course was the worst night of their lives, but they could have never made it through without me there. Again, I want to make clear, the whole time I felt completely clueless. I, I never knew what to do or what to say. I just was present with them. 
and they thanked me profusely. And then they said, we're wondering if you would be willing. We don't don't know any pastors. Could you officiate our son's memorial service? And it was an incredible honor to do that. And then a year later, I got ordained. It's a really special moment for a pastor. You know, you have your loved ones, your family, your church community there. And after the ordination was finished, you know, there were people there that, you know, talked with me, congratulated me. And I looked in the back of the church at at, at two people that I recognized from the night in the hospital. And they looked sheepish because they didn't know anybody else. And I don't even know who I was talking about. I said, excuse me one moment, please. Here and they walked up and said, What are you doing here? How did you find this place? They said, We heard you were getting ordained. We had to show up because you were there for us when we needed you, so we wanted to return the favor. Sacred moments on holy ground. And there was one other moment where I was invited into a room after Grandpa had passed away. But instead of solemn silence, that family was ready to walk down memory lane. And out came every phone to show every picture and to tell every story. And then the family invited me to say a few words. And again, I mean, what are you saying that moment? And so I just asked if I could read a passage of scripture with them. And they said, well, pastor, you know, we don't, we don't go to church all that much. You know, some of us have been a little bit, but we'd be happy for you to read from your Bible. And uh, I read Psalm 23. And as I read it, I started to hear all of them say it with me. I invite you to do the same. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me down paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. What is the gospel? When I ask myself this, I'll say that I believe that the gospel is the good news that the pain and suffering that we see throughout our world and experience in our lives is not the whole story. But in fact, there is a light to the darkness. There is a healing to the hurt. There is a restoration to the brokenness. The gospel is the good news of liberation from sin. And I'll tell you, there's a lot of sin right now that's hurting too many lives. Sin like poverty, sin like inequality, sin like greed, sin like cancer, sin like self-doubt, sin like loneliness, sin like injustice. If there's one thing that we may need to hear, It's a message that while those things might have their moment, and those things might have their day, and it might seem like they are winning, they pale in comparison to the greater power of love and compassion and laughter and community. 
And sometimes it's easy to say that, but it's really hard to believe it. And so sometimes all you can do is try to believe it by living it out in your way. And a term that helps me experience the gospel is radical empathy. It's something we see in Jesus' life, too. You can play a little bit. That's okay. I, I, like, I like the music. Radical empathy. Something that's been really helpful in my life. Radical empathy is when Jesus... He comes down from the Sermon on the Mount, and he sees a leper in need of healing. A man with leprosy who, who's been suffering for a long time. And, and Jesus could do a few things, right? He could, he could, you know, turn in the other direction and run away. He could heal him with a word or with like a something like that. But that's not what Jesus does. Jesus heals this man by doing, of all things, touching him, hugging Radical empathy is, is when Jesus is on his way to bring a dead girl back to life to the excitement of hundreds. Remember the crowds I talked about? Oh, they were really excited for this one. You see this like really important guy named Jairus comes and he's like, my daughter is dead. You can heal her. And everybody's like, ooh, this one will be good. And they all start following. And Jairus is like, come this way to my house, this way to my house. And they're getting their popcorn ready. And then Jesus stops the crowd because he and only he feels the slight brush of his garment from a woman who had been forgotten by society but had been suffering for as long as she could remember. And Jesus stops, looks at her, and helps her. It's radical empathy. Radical empathy is when Jesus meets Zacchaeus who every town member hates because he steals their hard-earned money. He's a terribly selfish and greedy man. They had good reason to not like this little guy. But you know what Jesus does when he calls him down from that tree? He doesn't chastise him. He doesn't put him in the middle of the town square so everybody can throw their tomatoes. Jesus says, Zacchaeus, can I come over so we can have a meal together? It's radical empathy to sit down and have a meal with a man like that. And I may not have the power to heal disease, but I do have more power than I realize, and so do you. And so when somebody needs a listening ear, wants to take some of my time so I can be with them, I can ask myself, what does the gospel say to do in this moment? When somebody says or posts something I vehemently disagree with, and I start to feel that righteous anger come about that, if I'm honest, feels kind of good because I know how wrong they are, then I can ask myself, Aaron, what does the gospel say in this moment? And when look in the mirror, maybe I don't really like how it looks. Maybe I don't like it at all. Maybe I do something that I'm truly ashamed of. And those voices start in my head that really, really put me in my place and let me know just how awful I am. Well, I can also ask myself about the voice of the gospel. What does it say to me instead? 
And what I want to tell myself that God is residing atop a very steep hill. And that maybe this is the year that I can finally climb that mountain, be religiously perfect, so that maybe, maybe I'll finally be close to God for once. The gospel reminds me of that. It's actually right next to me. A kind voice, a faithful presence that loves me just as I am, not standing still atop the mountain, but walking alongside with me every step of the way. To me, that's the gospel. You have to ask yourself what it is to you. Amen. Hey, thank you so much for joining us for the Night Church Podcast. We really are excited for where we're going, and you can help us in that mission. There's a few things that you can do. Number one is just stay connected. So if you want to follow up what's going on in the young adult ministry here at Loma Linda University Church, follow us on Instagram at Praxis Ministry. And then the other way to really build from this is to financially contribute. Your donations make such a big impact. And so if you go to lluc.org slash give, you can connect with Praxis Ministry there on a one-time gift or a reoccurring commitment. It makes such a difference. Well, we love you, care for you, and may God bless you richly as you take theory and make it into practice.